Welcome to the Holy Bible Study for Genesis chapter 14. Today I'm going to talk some more about Abraham. Also going to talk about Lot again because in this chapter Lot finds himself in some trouble. And of course he's going to count on Abraham to come bail him out. Also going to teach on the very first war in the Holy Bible. So there's a lot to cover today as always. Enjoy it. God bless y'all. Godspeed. Genesis chapter 14, we're continuing the narrative of Abraham, or Abram as he was known here. His name had not yet been changed yet. And if you haven't yet, I recommend going back and listening to the last two or three Genesis Bible studies. You can get the big picture of Abram's life so far and how we ended up where we are right now. And last week we left off with Abraham and Lot splitting up. And Abram stayed primarily in what we know today as the land of Israel. And Lot headed off to sinful, worldly Sodom and Gomorrah. So they definitely both went two completely different routes. And in chapter 14, we're going to find that before we get into Abram, there is the first mention of an international war. So this is the first mention of a war in the Holy Bible. And it says in verse 1, It came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariak, king of Elisar, Kedor Leomer, king of Elam, in title, king of nations, that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is Zor. All of these were joined together in the valley of Sidim, which is the Salt Sea. Now the Salt Sea, I believe, is what we know today as the Dead Sea. And the first thing we're going to notice here is that it appears that the first group of kings that are mentioned with Kedor Leomer, uh, that they are possibly uh, sons of Shem or descendants of Shem, because a couple of these names are associated with uh, descendants of Shem. And then we find that the other kings that are mentioned with Sodom and Gomorrah, etc., are associated with children of Ham, um, the Canaanites as we know them. So, like I mentioned in the very beginning when we first started talking about the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, that Ham was going to be a thorn in Shem's side, that he was going to be like a reemergence of the line of Cain, and he was going to constantly be trying to destroy uh, the Hebrews, the Jewish people, the descendants of Shem. And we just see that here, that the children of Ham are going to rebel against the children of Shem. All right, uh, 12 years, those kings of the descendants of Ham had served Kedor Leomer, and in the 13th year they rebelled. And in the 14th year came Kedor Leomer and the kings that were with him 
and smote the Rephaims in Ashtaroth Karnaim, and the Zuzims in Ham, and the Amines in Shaveh Kiriathim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir, unto El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Before we go further, uh, I want you to notice these names here, the Rephaims, the Zuzims, the Amines. These are what many today consider to be like the race of the Nephilim that we read about before the flood because their names can kind of be associated in the Hebrew with giants. But the thing you want to understand is that um, giants don't always have to be demons. I mean, there can be human giants. I mean, just look at Shaquille O'Neal. So these were possibly just a race of human giants. Uh, we find that they're again mentioned, you know, in the days of Joshua when, when the witnesses go out to spy out the land and they come back and say, we were like grasshoppers um, in their sight. They're like giants. So we're going to constantly find this unnatural type of men mentioned throughout the Old Testament. And again, they're going to all be descendants of Ham. So it is a possibility that they were influenced and inhabited bodily by demons, much like the Nephilim were before the flood. But I don't believe that these are actually demons walking around in human flesh. These could just be men with demonic influence. Um, but they weren't man-demon hybrids as the Nephilim were before the flood. But they're definitely, they can be associated with them. It's just too many people try and lump the Rephaims and the Nephilim together as the same thing, and that's not possible because God had wiped out the inhabitants of the earth because of the demons and the men um, becoming hybrids, because the demons were you know, having sexual relations with the daughters of men. So I don't think God would have allowed that again. So it's just possible here that men had, um, since they had wicked hearts, the Canaanites, I mean, they were sacrificing their children under the false gods. They were burying their children alive um, in the sand as offerings to false gods. Um, they were pedophiles. They were rapists. They were murderers. Uh, they were cold-blooded. We're going to read a lot about a lot of their sinful, abominable things that they had done in Sodom and Gomorrah coming soon. So the Canaanites and the descendants of Ham were just wicked from the start, much like Cain and Cain's line. So it's not far-fetched to think that they had given their bodies over to Satan and to demons to acquire a certain power and um, supernatural growth. Irregardless, God is with the children of Shem through whom Abraham descended from. And unfortunately, we're going to find that Abraham and uh, the children of Shem, his relatives, at this point, they're going to be distant relatives, but they're actually going to get into a little conflict in this chapter. Yet and still, 
since those are God's people, God's chosen people, the Jews, the Hebrews, he is with them. We find that with Joshua, how Joshua wipes out all the giants and, and um, you know, David with Goliath. So we find here that these kings, these Shemite kings that are with Kedorlaomer, excuse me, and forgive me if I butcher some of these names. They're um, old school Hebrew names and they're very hard to pronounce, so be patient with me. But we find that they did smite the Rephaims, these giants, uh, as well as the Zuzims and the Amins, as well as the Horites in Mount Seir unto El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And we're in verse 7. And they returned and came to Emishpat which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites. And we're going to read a lot about the Amalekites in the future. And also the Amorites that dwelt in Hazazan Tamar. And there went out the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, the same as Zor. And they joined battle with them in the vale of Sidim with Kedar Laomer, the king of Alam, and with Tidal, king of nations, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariak, king of Elisar, four kings with five. So we find that uh, it looks like five kings and peoples of Ham came against the four kings of the children of Shem. And when we read about title king of nations, it doesn't mean he was a king of like many nations of the world. The word nations here could have just meant like tribes. So he was a king of tribes in a certain rural area. Uh, so he was not a king of nations as we would, would think today. So already we find that the children of Shem were outnumbered. There were more kings of the children of Ham than there had been of the children of Shem, and yet still God gave them victory. Verse 10 in the valley of Sidim was full of slime pits, which could have been known as tar pits in our day. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountain. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. And there came one that had escaped, and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and brother of Aner. And these were confederate with Abram. Now, what you want to notice here is, is it's kind of easy to get confused. It says that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled... And fell there, and that they fled to the mountains, whoever remained of them. And then the next verse says they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah. Don't get confused and think that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah took all their own goods and their own victuals and went their way. It means that the kings who defeated them, the kings with Kedor Laomer, they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah. They took all the victuals and went their way, meaning like the booty, the spoils of war. And But they made a mistake here. Again, like I said, the children of Shem, who are relatives of Abram, are going to come in conflict with him, conflict with him ignorantly, 
Because I think had they known, they wouldn't have done this. But since Lot was in Sodom and Gomorrah, he got confused with being allied with them, with being a child of Ham. So they had taken him as a prisoner, not knowing he was a relative um, and a nephew of Abram, whom I'm sure the children of Shem knew of, because Abram was quite possibly the richest and most powerful man in the region, even in the whole world at that time. So I think they ignorantly took Lot, but still, that's going to bring them into conflict with Abram. It says they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and departed. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew. This is the first time we read the name Hebrew in the Holy Bible. And the name Hebrew can mean one who passes over. And as we know, Abram was passing over the land that God was going to later give his descendants, the Hebrews, the Jews, the Israelites. But Hebrew is also thought to imply a descendant of Eber, who was again a, a child of Shem and who was a forefather of Abraham in that most holy line through which the Lord Jesus Christ will later descend from the line of the Hebrews. So for anyone who likes to say, oh, well, Abram was also the father of Ishmael, so, you know, he was a Gentile and he's the father of everybody. No, it says right here he was a Hebrew. So we know that he was a descendant of Shem and thus he was a Jew. And it says he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Ishcol and brother of Aner, and these were confederate with Abram. So Abram here had made some allies in the region. And so we find here that Abram was a man of peace. Abram was not out looking to fight. He was not out looking for war. Uh, we find that in his nature all throughout from the time we're introduced to him. He just wants to go about his own business. He does not want to get into conflict. But at the same time, uh, when the time comes, Abram we're going to find is ready for war if need be. Because we find here that he had actually trained many of his servants to be warriors. It's going to read in the next verse or two here. Verse 14, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. So, not only... Did Abram have well-trained men of war among his servants? He had 318 of them. So, do you think he wasn't ready if things ever went south? You'd be mistaken if you do. He was prepared for anything. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobah which is on the left hand of Damascus. So, the thing is, is Abram and his small army of 318 men went up against four nations in total and their armies, which you had to figure, had to number in the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. So, 
Abram's small band of men was greatly outnumbered. Yet you got to remember, God said he would be with Abraham. He would bless Abraham. He would bless those that bless him and curse those that curse him. And he would make Abram's name a blessing and make his name great. And so, I mean, you watch those films today like um, 300, that one movie, I think it was about some, some 300 Greeks. I'm not for certain. I haven't seen it in forever. But it's it's an old tale that, you know, these 300 went up against these large armies and defeated them. That is all, I believe, based on Old Testament battles. Because if you want to talk about an army of 300 men defeating an army of tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands even if it was the Greeks or someone else who had done that in history, you have to look back and say, well, Abram was the very first one to ever do that. And then after that, there was someone else, I believe it was... And in the book of Judges, I believe, you had Gideon and his 300 men who defeated the much larger enemy forces. These movies you see today about uh, recent modern battles in our history of small forces defeating much larger forces, that all is trumped by the Holy Bible because God said these men did it first. And so Abram's small little band of men defeated these much larger armies And we're going to find that, verse 16, he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. One other thing I want to point out, God makes clear how easily Abraham won this battle with this small army. So not only did his small army defeat the larger armies, but God shows that it happened quickly and miraculously because He only devotes one verse to the battle. One verse. I mean, a whole battle, a war, you would think, would go on for at least one whole chapter. You'd read about, well, such and such made advances, and then they were pushed back, or, you know, so many of these men were slain of this army, and then such and such came to their aid and rescued them. Or, I mean, you read about a lot of the battles in David's day, with Saul, and you read about, you know, where they fell on their sword, and such and such. Here, though, just one verse, and war is over. Abram wins. So that just shows uh, the power of God and, and what he can do, not only in Abram's life, but in our lives. So if you have, I mean, not a physical army coming against you, but if you have armies of Satan coming against your life in any way, Um, trying to spoil you and and trying to steal, kill, and destroy in your life, just know that, uh, like later on in the Holy Bible, we read that, um, you know, the eyes were opened. Um, I believe it was in the days, I want to say, of Elisha. It might have even been his servant, uh, his underling, where he said, you know, open your eyes where, where these who are with us are far more than those that are against us, because there was a large army coming against them to destroy them. But he saw just armies of angels surrounding them with swords drawn. So just know that the armies of God are far more powerful than any armies of this world or any armies of Satan. So if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're covered in his blood, if your home's covered in his blood, if your loved ones are covered in his blood, 
then you are surrounded by legions of holy, powerful, protective archangels and angels of God daily. Not just a guardian angel. I mean, you can call upon legions of holy, powerful, protective angels whenever you need them, and God will send them. So, open your spiritual eyes and look around. Those that are with you are far more powerful than any man in this world that's coming against you with a weapon, or any army of men, or any band of thugs. Forget about it. Those who are with you are far more powerful than those that are against you. And that did Abram have angelic help here? It's possible. It's very possible. But God definitely said it was it was a victory won in a miraculous way because Abram defeated him with the snap of his fingers. And uh, so he brought back his brother Lot. Now when it says his brother, obviously that's not literal there. Um, in the old Hebrew, this could imply um, you know, a close relative. As obviously we know Lot was his nephew. So he didn't all of a sudden just become his brother. It's still his nephew. Um, if you go to the New Testament and Jesus said, you know, you're my brothers. He called his disciples his brothers. It was a tight-knit group at that time. Uh, just as it was here. So they referred to one another as brothers, even though it could have been a cousin, a distant cousin, or, you know, a nephew, whatnot. Okay, verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Kedor Laomer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shava, which is the king's dale. Now, the king of Sodom was coming to meet Abram because he actually wanted to thank him for defeating all these kings um, whom the Hamites had to flee from and couldn't defeat. And I believe that when Abram and his army went and defeated Kedolaramar and all his armies, they were actually, and I'm speaking here of Kador, Laomer, and his armies were in pursuit of those Hamites who had fled into the mountains. So by Abram defeating them one night in one fell swoop, he basically had saved the lives, unwittingly, I think even unknowingly, of those Sodomites who had fled. So I don't think Abram was really out to save these people, but nonetheless the king of Sodom, uh, since they, their lives were basically spared because of Abram, uh, King of Sodom was coming to thank him and coming to give him gifts. But before we even get into that story, there is a very interesting character who is going to be talked about throughout the Holy Bible, Old Testament and New in the future. In the book of Psalms, he's going to be mentioned again. And then in the book of Hebrews, Paul is going to pay a great deal of attention to him. This man's name is Melchizedek. And it's more of a title than it is a name, because Melchizedek means king of righteousness in the Hebrew. So Melchi would refer to king, and Zedek would mean righteousness in the Hebrew. So Melchizedek would be a king of righteousness. And we read about him in, in verse 18, we read about him here. Melchizedek, king of Salem... And Salem was the original name for Jerusalem. So this king of righteousness, this mysterious man, 
was the king of Jerusalem, whom, keep in mind, Jesus Christ will rule and reign from in the future. That will be the capital of his kingdom in the future, in the millennium. And then after the millennium is over, forever and ever, Lord Jesus will rule with the Father from the new Jerusalem. So keep that in mind, because I'm going to elaborate some more on the connections between Melchizedek and Jesus. So Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. So he brought forth bread and wine. Who else brought forth bread and wine? The Last Supper, Lord Jesus. There's a connection there. He was the priest of the Most High God. Now this was something that we don't find in the Old Testament because there were either kings or there were priests in the lines of the Israelites the way God set it up. The kings were of the line of Judah. The priests were of the line of Levi. There were never kings and priests until later on in the Holy Bible we find that um, Lord Jesus is both king and priest. And we become kings and priests when we become his children. When we become believers, we become kings and priests. Other than that, in the Holy Bible, there are no other kings and priests. So this guy is a rarity here. He is both a king and a priest of, get it, the Most High God. And Most High God there in the Hebrew is, I believe, El Elyon. Elion means most high, and God in the Hebrew is El. So he was the priest of El Elion. And so if he's a king and a priest of the most high God, Yahweh, Yahweh, El Elion, who do we know as the king and a priest of Yahweh, El Elohi, Israel, El Elion, the Lord Jesus Christ? So. There are people who say the Melchizedek was Shem, or it was maybe another divine being, such as an angel come down, but I truly believe that Melchizedek was the appearance of Lord Jesus Christ to Abraham, Abram, in the Old Testament, because we find, I believe, that Jesus walked in the garden as God in the flesh with Adam and Eve. Um, I believe that Jesus appears to Abraham with the angels coming up. I want to say it's near chapter 19. It may even be in chapter 19, um, right before he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. Because Yahweh, we're told, never leaves heaven. He is always in heaven, the Father. So whenever it says God comes down and dwells among men or walks among men, um, or it says the Lord you know, spoke with him, face to face, that's always the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is God in the flesh, not only in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well. So whenever you read of God coming down and doing things on the earth, that would be in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not far-fetched to think that Melchizedek, with all these connections, would be the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, we're going to find a few other things I'm going to point out that connect him to Jesus, and that's that in the book of Hebrews, we are also told that there is no um, birth mentioned 
of him and no death mention for him. So Melchizedek would just out of nowhere, he just appeared. Any other very important character in the Holy Bible like this man, we will have a reference to when they were born and when they died. This man, we didn't get that. He just was there. So that to me signifies that that is once again the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want to read some more about that, um, you want to go to the book of Hebrews. And I want to say it's chapter 5 and I believe also in 7. There's two chapters there where Paul goes into great detail about Melchizedek and his connection to Jesus Christ. He actually at one point um, likens Melchizedek unto a son of God. So, obviously making clear connection there to Jesus. So, I highly recommend if you want to get the big picture about this Melchizedek character and why I believe it could be Jesus, uh, to go and read those chapters of Hebrew 5 and 7. And we're going to move on here, though. There's also, before I forget, in chapter 7 of Hebrews, I believe Paul goes into detail about the importance of Abram here paying tithes to Melchizedek. He talks about the importance of that in relation to the Levites and the descendants of Abram who are going to come forth from his loins, meaning Isaac and Jacob, the Israelites. So you definitely, if you want to get the big picture of the importance and the significance here of why Abram ties to this man, this king of righteousness, this Melchizedek, definitely read chapter 7 of Hebrews. Okay, so Melchizedek, king of Salem, Jerusalem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was a priest of El Elyon, the Most High God, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him tithes of all. So again, Abram paid tithes to this mysterious king of Jerusalem. Well, just like I said, out of nowhere, it just shows up. And now Abram's paying tithes to him. So Abram knew something about this man um, that is not inferred here in the text. So Abram, obviously, who was in communication with the Lord, um, Basically, on a daily basis, it says, you know, the Lord spake to Abraham, the Lord speaks to Abraham. So, we know that uh, he was constantly looking up, constantly praying, constantly in communication with the Lord. So, it's not far-fetched that he would recognize this as the Lord come down in the flesh, as I believe he does when the Lord comes down with the angels before he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. Abram recognizes that divine presence. He recognizes that that is the Lord come down in the flesh. So I believe that's why he pays tithes here, because in his mind he is paying tithes unto God. All right, verse 21, And the kings of Sodom said, King of Sodom said unto Abram, 
Give me the persons and take the goods to yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom. So remember now, that's Melchizedek, he comes in quick and then he's gone quick. Three verses. And Melchizedek, we don't read about him anymore. Um, until the book, there's a psalm that mentions him. And then he's not mentioned again until the book of Hebrews where Paul goes into greater detail about him. So he comes and he goes. Now we're back to the king of Sodom, who we read about right before this mysterious Melchizedek showed up. The king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is yours lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, Honor, Eshcol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. So when it says, Abram lifted up his hand unto the Lord, what I believe that means is that he had made a vow unto the Lord before the battle, saying, Lord, if you give me victory, I promise to give you the glory. I'm not doing this for victuals. I'm not doing this for booty or spoils. I'm doing this to save my nephew Lot. So if you're with me, Lord, if you give me victory, I will not take anything as a reward. I am only doing it to bring you glory. And so when he finally does win the battle, quickly, may I say, this king of Sodom again wants to reward him, and Abram's like, no. I don't want anyone who ever hears of this miraculous battle that my 318 men beat all these armies. Because, again, Abram's name is going to be made great. There's going to be um, history books written about him. He knows this. He wants this king of Sodom to know that I took nothing from you. So when you pass this down to your descendants and say, this Abram guy... He came along with his band of 300, and he defeated all these nations. And so we rewarded him. We gave him all these spoils. Abram saying, don't say that. Say that I took nothing from you. Only that which my men need to eat, and what you think they deserve, give it to them. But to me, give nothing. Not even a shoelace. I want nothing from you. Because my victory came from the Lord my God. So to him give the glory. The fact that you're still alive and your people are still alive this day is not because of me, Abram. It's because of the Lord, the Most High God, El Elyon, Yahweh, whom I serve. That's why you're still alive. That's why I was brought victory. So give him glory as I raised my hand to heaven and told him I would do that I would not take one thing not one victory spoil from this battle. And so that is why Abram did not take anything from the king of Sodom. That's why he refused it. And that is going to end this chapter. Well, that'll do it next time. Genesis chapter 15 and 
going to be talking about some of the most important parts of Abraham's life. Going to talk about the promises that God made to him. Going to talk about the faith of Abraham, which is a model for all of us today. And we're also going to talk about the covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants concerning the land, the holy land of Israel. So it's going to be a very informative study. Hope y'all will tune back in and until next time, God bless y'all.